Hey, what's up, everybody? Brandon Hovack here from Blue Hen Sports Cage. Before the episode, just wanted to remind you that in addition to our Thursday show, we're now doing weekly shows on Mondays from 4 to 5 p.m., mostly focusing on the NFL, but also touching on Delaware basketball and a little bit on the NBA. That's also available here on the Blue Hen Sports Cage podcast feed. And some other news to fill you in on, the Blue Hen Sports Cage podcast is now available on Spotify. So just like on any other app, just search Blue Hen Sports Cage, and you'll be able to find every episode of the podcast right there in the app. A lot of good stuff on this episode. Jake and I started off by talking about the phantom pass interference from the Rams-Saints game, and if anything needs to be done about that. We also touch on whether the NFL's overtime rule should stay put or be changed. Later in the show, we draft the 10 best players playing in Super Bowl 53 and rank the six playoff teams in both conferences this year in our predicted order of finish for the 2019 season. All that and more coming up on this episode of the Blue Hen Sports Cage Podcast. He looks really good. It finally hit me that Delaware's not just playing to keep it close. Delaware's here to win. But if they're going to really lock down in a game, this would be the one to do it. Overall, I think this is their identity now. There weren't enough things that you and I could say on the broadcast to praise Eric Carter. I do have to put out a formal apology to Darian Bryant. It's over for the Eagles. When you're only better than the Cleveland Browns, you're not very good. This is going to be the Delaware defense like, through and through. If you lose, you're leaving yourself on the bubble with all of these other teams that I would say are just as good as you are. Losing Nicole, that's a big part of what we did a year ago. It's a process, and we need to really lay a strong foundation of who we are as a basketball program. You're listening to the Blue Hen Sports Cage Podcast. The big conversation on Monday and carrying on throughout this week now are the two kind of things hanging over these games from the past weekend. You have the refereeing conundrum of the pass interference that most, if not everyone, agrees was missed in the Rams and Saints game, but not everybody agrees, I guess, to the degree that that's significant. And you have the overtime rules that come into play in both games, but more so the Kansas City-New England game, where New England wins the coin flip, they get possession first, and Kansas City doesn't get the ball back. New England wins it by scoring a touchdown on the first drive in that game. We've mainly focused Monday on these teams themselves and, and how they won these games and what we expect from them now going into the Super Bowl. But now that we have some time between these two weeks, I want to get your thoughts, Jake, and I'll share mine as well, on both of those conversation points, both of those dilemmas, really. And starting first with the pass interference call, what do you make of that? Do you think that there needs to be some sort of change, whether it be replay, allowable in certain situations for penalties? Do you believe that that play itself significantly altered the state of that game in a way that there should be something done about it? I don't think it has any relevance nor importance the refs missed the call, and they've missed plenty that entire game. The Saints had a brutal face mask on Jared Goff that was not called. The Saints had a brutal face mask slash horse collar on Brandon Cooks that was not called. We had a Saints offensive lineman get stomped on with videos and pictures by a Saints defensive lineman. There are missed calls on every side of the ball, every angle, always. 
it stinks that that play had that much riding on it. But you can make the argument that if they called any of the other missed penalties, that the game wouldn't be in the same place. And even to add to it, the Saints got the ball. So I think that it doesn't have any relevance because everybody makes mistakes. The refs make mistakes on calls. But to now say that you need pass interference to be a reviewable play is crazy. I mean, it you're going to say the pass interference needs to be reviewed because it wasn't called. So as you as a coach need to say, hey, this pass interference wasn't called. I think from wherever I'm standing on the field that that was pass interference. Let me throw a flag. Have you review a play that was not called? So now instead of needing sufficient evidence to overturn, you need sufficient evidence to make a call in the first place. And then should that call be made, you have now A, wasted time, B, wasted a play and player safety, and C, now you have to march the ball all the way downfield and start again. So I don't think there should be any backlash. Pass interference, pass interference. Refs miss calls. If you're going to revamp it, just revamp the entire thing. I would. I don't understand that second point, though. Like, Why is it crazy to make a penalty reviewable in that manner? Like, we are willing to give coaches power to review a spot on the field, right? You could say this either wasn't or was a first down, or he was marked down at the 29-yard line. He should have been marked down at the 32-yard line. Why can't and, – and it's not just what the coach sees on the field. It's what he hears from his replay team in his headset. Why can't they they look at that play and tell Sean Payton that was pass interference, throw the challenge flag? The same restrictions would be in place. You're not throwing it on every single close play for the fear that you lose your challenges and you wouldn't have them in a major moment in the game. But that's what replay is for is to avoid – mistakes in those significant moments at the end of the game and that play yes there were plenty of other ones missed in the game that would have altered the course of the game and would have therefore shaped which team would win and lose the game but none were as significant as that play in that point in time on third down when you look at the scope of things that play was so significant because the others were not I mean, should they have gotten a face mask call on the Rams at that point? The Rams would have been got 15 yards for an um, unsportsmanlike conduct and a first down and would have kept marching and they could have scored. So it's each play is only as important as the ones before and each penalty is only important as, as as important as the penalties called before that. And if we review or say reviewing pass interference, coaches are only going to throw flags. Oh, I should say the replay booth is only going to throw flags if it's blatantly obvious. Because pass interference, as it's been forever and as it will right. be forever, you would still is a judgment institute, call. You would still institute what we currently have as dictating whether something is reviewed or not, conclusive evidence. You would still have that as the overarching degree that a play has to stand to. So a lot of times a ball is thrown up in the air. It's rolled incomplete, no call. They show the replay, and you hear the announcers kind of say, mm, yeah, I could kind of see it called either way. On those, you'd stick with the ruling on the field. But on something as egregious as Tommy Lee Lewis being wiped out way before the ball comes, I don't see why we shouldn't get that call right. And we have the capability for Sean Payton to throw the challenge flag, for Bill Vinovich to go under the surface pro, look at that play two times, and be able to say, 
that was past interference. Well, it's because that doesn't happen, and it happened once. But there's no other situation, and I saw a full run-through that Max Kellerman did on this, and he looked back on thousands of well, – not him personally, but his team looked back on thousands of past interference calls, and to their football minds, there was not a single call that comes into this. So are well, we instituting this rule I think, because I think of the Bears, severity? I think Bears fans – would go back to the first week of the playoffs and they would want to see if Jordan Matthews was interfered with on a penalty that was over 30 yards that set up the Eagles with the first and goal. You could say in that earlier instance in this game, Jared Goff gets his face mask turned. That's a significant play. If Sean McVay threw the challenge flag, why not go under the booth and get that right? I, I'm taking this angle because of how I've always been with re- replays and referees is if we're going to make a replay a thing, fire every referee, make it all automated, have everybody watching cameras, watching booths, have a 10, 15 second break in between each play should there something needs to be called. Because you have referees to make the plays. You don't like when they make the plays, so you review them, but you keep the referees, you keep the human error involved in the game. So we are now factoring on what point we want human error, what point we want machine error, and what point we want machine precision. And at this point, we're just wiping out the human error, which it sounds great. It does. Don't we want the two most deserving teams right. and in it the sounds Super Bowl? Great. But then instead of just saying, okay, mass, make pass interference reviewable, there should be people saying remove referees from the game. I'm Take not, them off. I'm not I know saying you're not saying that. that. I'm saying – these big moments on a handful of plays, every coach gets two challenges, and we go and make sure that the call is made properly. And when it's conclusive that there was a pass interference missed or a face mask or a holding missed, you reverse the ruling on the field. And then – so if that gets instituted, Saints fans will say, OK, we could have challenged that pass interference call. Boom. Change the pace of the game. But then Rams fans are going to write, OK, we challenged Jared Goff's face mask. We challenged yeah. Brandon Cooks' horse collar. What's the point? We're just going to go back to and forth, right. dual, dual blows and cancel the each other point, out? The point is to reward the team that is the best team, that we take away all these elements that neither team can control, that sway the winning percentage to one – or the winning probability, excuse me, to one team or the other. We get the most deserving team out of it. You either remove refs or you accept the fact that they make mistakes. It, it's what happens. It's The severity of it is what's magnifying all of this, that it was – that's why that that's why time. it should be mag- like that's why this is a conversation that should be had because it is so significant. The Saints won't play in the Super Bowl because of that call. Sign the bill, abolish refs or abolish replay. I'll be the first signature on it. You're listening to Blue Hen Sports Cage on 91.3 WVUD. Real quick before we go to break, overtime. They changed the rules about five years ago. There have been eight playoff games since. Five of them. One team has gone down the field and scored a touchdown. The first team to possess the ball in overtime over the course of the regular season, when the rules were instituted in the regular season, has about a 52% win probability versus, you know, ideally you're looking at 50-50 chances, right? Um, what, do you, what do you make of that? Should the current modified sudden death overtime rules persist? Should there be a change to the overtime rules? What do you want to win the game? Do you want the best team or do you want the best offense? That's where we're at. If you want the best team to win the Super Bowl, keep these overtime rules as they are. A team that is excelling on both sides of the ball 
wants to do this. But the Kansas City Chiefs don't. They don't excel on both sides of the ball. They're an offensive powerhouse, and should Patrick Mahomes have gotten the ball first, I'd put more yeses than noes that Tom Brady doesn't touch the ball. Yeah, I also think it's— Everybody said as much on Monday when we talked It's also about to this. note that if this were to be the other way around, and Patrick Mahomes marched downfield— one. We'd have the same and Tom Brady saying why doesn't touch Tom the Brady ball. get to touch the ball. But it would be half as many people that are saying it. Obviously it's because of the Patriots being the Patriots, but I think I think it's like magnified minded people would would the good and out good analyst would be would say why didn't thing. Tom Brady touch the yeah. ball? You need if, to if that's what they believe now. You need to decide what you want. If you want the best offense, it should be college rules. The best offense will obviously prevail because both teams have to touch the ball, and if you're a better offense, you're going to score more. And if you want the best team on both sides of the football, keep it the same. If your team pulls the defense, they need to play defense, you make the stop. You want to get to the Super Bowl, make the stop. I think I would like to see both teams be guaranteed one possession. I think I'd like to see a circumstance where the team that gets the ball first, if they score a touchdown— the other team gets an opportunity to score a touchdown or go for a two-point conversion to win the game. And if they score a touchdown and just kick the extra point, then we go to sudden death. A field goal, a safety, a defensive touchdown, whatever, that wins the game. I'd like to see both teams get that chance just because I feel that's more fair than the current system, which I don't think is bad, but I think it does give advantage to whoever wins the coin flip, which again is something outside of both teams' control. That being said, that type of system where both teams are guaranteed a possession gives some sway now to the team that possesses the ball second because now you have the advantage of knowing what you need to score. You know we either need a touchdown because they got a field goal. You know if we score a touchdown, we can convert a two-point conversion and just win the game. That advantage would still, I think, creep the winning percentage to 51-52% to the team who possesses the ball second. It takes away a little bit of the coin flip. It gives you the strategy of picking whether you want it first or second. Overall, if it stayed current system, I think that argument's totally fair to just say, if you want to win the game, get a stop defensively, pick a field goal or score a touchdown second. But would it be more fair to institute some sort of system, whether it's college rules, whether it's another modified over sudden death over time, that gives both teams a chance to possess the ball? Probably. And I think that would be more fun for viewers, too. It's also where the game's going as a whole. Everyone wants to see offense. Nobody wants to see a team get stuffed on defense. The other team to march 25 yards off a good return, kick a field goal, sign off. Where the game's going, I think what Parker and I were talking about, which we thought would be awesome, scrap offense and defense, put both teams' punters on the field, and do a punter skills challenge. Passing, running, kicking, throwing. Best punter wins. I take the Rams every day. Well, wouldn't get Patrick Mahomes on the field. You'd get Johnny Hecker. Wouldn't, wouldn't, I don't know if it would silence all of those critics. You're listening to the Blue Hen Sports Cage podcast. What we're going to do now is we're going to draft the best 10 players participating in Super Bowl 53. If you live under a rock, it's the Patriots and the Rams. The rules of this segment are simple. It's a 10-player draft. Snake style would go back and forth. And we're simply picking who we believe are the best players, regardless of position. This is not a, you're starting a franchise tomorrow, who do you want? This is, who's the best player, and who do you think is the second best player? 
you want to end up with the five better players than the other person. That's the rule of the game. And really, it's just so we can talk about these guys who are in the game. Jake, you won our season-long picks, our postseason picks. Therefore, you are rewarded with the first pick. But reminder, it is snake style. So we'll go back and forth after this one. Number one pick, best player in Super Bowl 53 is. I hate having the first pick because one and two, like, I think my the person who I would pick second is better, but I can't not pick Tom Brady with yeah. the first overall pick. It just seems silly to me to not pick him. So I'll take Tom Brady. I obviously know who you're going to pick second and, frankly, think you might have the better talented player but you can't not pick Tom Brady first. Tom Brady was number one on my big board, too, and I didn't put any notes. Oh, you, you had Tom Brady. I, I don't have Tom Brady one on my big board. I have Tom Brady two on my big board, but I can't not take him with the first well, overall it was that That's my thinking. It's just like it's, he's the greatest quarterback of all time. Yeah. Would this feel a little bit different if D. Ford lines up on sides and Tom Brady threw three interceptions in an AFC Conference Championship right. game? Maybe, but he also orchestrated – a beautiful drive in overtime, completing three third and longs to win the game for the Patriots. And you get a lot of credit for that in my book. He would have been my from pick. Me. Take Number him, two, take I'm taking me. Aaron Donald yeah, that's of a... the Los Angeles Rams. Led the NFL with 20 and a half sacks. Also had four forced fumbles this season. Uh, the biggest thing is how big a factor can he be in this game? So far this postseason, he's not been a huge factor in terms of raw production. Just four tackles overall, zero sacks in the Rams' two first games. Is there an argument to be made that he opens up things for other Rams to make plays? Absolutely, because he commands that much attention from your offensive line. But this is going to be a fun matchup. Looking at some numbers earlier, New England is number one in pass protection, according to Football Outsiders' adjusted sack rate. They allow sacks on just 3.8%. That's adjusted for opponent and for home field versus uh, being away. It showed against the Chiefs. Brady had time. And even when he doesn't have time, he's able to get the ball out of his hands quickly. He knows exactly where to go with the football. How big a factor can Aaron Donald be? Can he change this game with a couple of plays in a couple of weeks? He is definitely number two and an argument to be made that he's the most talented player in this game. Number three, we're going back-to-back snake style. I'm going with Todd Gurley. Uh, This was a little bit tougher, but I had to go with the track record, the season body of work. 1,251 rushing yards, 17 rushing touchdowns, had four receiving touchdowns. He's number one in football outsiders, defense-adjusted yards above replacement level, and it's not even close. This number doesn't mean a whole lot to people, but it showed the discrepancy between Gurley and number two. Gurley was at 367. Derrick Henry, number two with 280, almost 100 points less than that metric. Again, how big of a factor can he be in the Super Bowl? Just 10 rushing yards on four carries against the Saints. Four and five, because we're going snake. I'm taking two Patriots pass catchers. Order, doesn't matter. Put them how you want them. I'm going to take Julian Edelman and Rob Gronkowski. Julian Edelman, second second best postseason receiver ever, period. Second most in reception, second most in yards, third most in scores. Rob Gronkowski, he's Rob Gronkowski. I would say any Saints player is on a mismatch with him, uh, both size and skill. And I think that it's hard to imagine Rob Gronkowski not being there. It was, 
I was kind of surprised you took Gurley at three. I have Gurley fourth on my list, Gronk at three. Okay. Just because of who he is. But Gurley and Donald, I think, are the two best Rams players on either side of the ball in general. And also, what's interesting about Aaron Donald is the Patriots offensive line does not double team. You are going to be very hard-pressed to find any opponent or any film that the Patriots double team anyone off the line. Aaron Donald always gets double teamed. He gets double teamed on more than 70% of defensive plays. The next closest is like Von Miller with like 27 or something. So it, this might be the game where Aaron Donald's in single coverage the entire time and seeing if he could do something with it. The flip side of that, though, is the Patriots are always good for one of these complete Overfalls. 180 yeah. tendency breakers where if they had a week to prepare, Aaron Donald would be seeing a lot of Shaq Mason one-on-one. But if with two weeks to repair, they might throw Probably some crazy stuff David that they haven't and, shown. Put David Andrews on them and expect them to play. I, I could see that. It won't be surprising. Uh, but regardless, my four and five, Rob Gronkowski, Julian Edelman. Yeah, my note on Gronk was he's still Gronk. And a lot was made this season about his demise and who knows what the future holds for him. But that play on the sideline Vintage. last week, that – that just shows you what he's still capable of. And I think he means a lot to their running game, too. Maybe more than he means to the passing game at this point. Cause, he's a great blocker. Yeah, he, he's an extra offensive lineman in their running game. And that's been huge for them in their late season renaissance. You can always still find Edelman. Like, Brady's going to find James White, these other guys, if Gronk doesn't have 10 catches in this game. But he's a factor in the running game, which I think gives him a lot of value added. This is Blue End Sports Cage on 91.3 WVD. We're drafting the top 10 players in Super Bowl 53. Jake took Brady. First, I went Aaron Donald and Todd Gurley, 2-3. and three. Then Jake just took Rob Gronkowski and Julian Edelman. With the sixth pick, I'm taking Shaq Mason, the left guard of the New England Patriots. According to Pro Football Focus, number one guard in football this season. And you go back to that idea of their pass protection and how good it has been this season and what it will mean in this game going up against Aaron Donald and Indomitian Sue and Mar- Michael Brockers. Shaq Mason has been a big part of that. It's a talented offensive line all the way around. He graded out as the highest, so I give him a lot of that credit, and he's my pick at number six. And then number seven, this is where it kind of got a little mucky on my board as far as where I went next. I went Greg Zauerlein, though, the kicker from the Rams. We might have undersold how big that kick was when we talked about the games on Monday. That's a 57-yard game winner, good from close to 70 by many people's metrics. If he misses that kick, New Orleans gets the ball back at the 40-yard line, their own 40, needing 25 yards for their own field goal to win the game. Probably less. I mean, Will Lutz is probably second in on pure leg strength. At home. Yeah. And... It takes a lot of guts to just put your guy out there to begin with and not punt the ball. They ran a screen the play before and picked up nothing, which, you know, if they got in four or five yards would make you feel a little bit better about that kick. That was a monster kick, and it's a big factor to have down the stretch in these close games, to have a guy that you can put out there and be confident in from 50-plus. Ask the Bears how they would love to have a kicker who can make that type of kick with the game on the line, got iced the whole nine yards. It was huge, and he's he's been excellent all throughout his career. Especially, yeah, injuries were a problem earlier this season, but when he's healthy, he's the best kicker in the game, probably. I had one offensive lineman on my list, and it was not Shaq Mason. It was not a New England Patriot in the first place. 
Uh, and I'm going to pick him, obviously, next. Um, so my next pick, after Brandon picks Shaq Mason and Greg the Leg, I'm probably going to go Gilmore. I don't like it because there's people that I don't have that I w- – you know what? I'm going to take him. Whatever. Give me Gilmore. He'll, he's the best pass defender on the field for the Super Bowl. Uh, he's one of the only Patriots to make the Pro Bowl, and I like Stephon Gilmore on that note. And then ninth, I'm going to take Andrew Whitworth. Yeah. He's just a— He's sixth on my list. He's, he's just a body. Guy. He's just a heck of a guy. He's a great run opener, and he's just a great defender. Uh, well, defender of the defense. He's an offensive lineman, whatever. It'll make sense. Uh, so I'm the going to have protector. the sixth or my eighth pick, Stephon Gilmore. Nine, Andrew Whitworth. I like that. He's 37, or close to 37. He's going to be 37 the week after the Super Bowl. Yeah. He, Absolutely amazing. Well, no, he's, he's 37 that. right now, it says. Oh. That's it. So we'll, he's I'm, 30 in December. Yeah, I mean, dude, dude's a tank. Had, had a long Pro Bowl career with Cincinnati. Many people thought he was pretty much done when he was a free agent. Signs with the Rams the first year with McVay and has been rock solid. As their left tackle. So this is it. This is final pick. And I have a draft. few honorable mentions yeah, that we'll, Andres we'll, and so do you, I'm sure. Yeah, we'll add a few more. Uh, let me go to Trey Flowers. Wow. To cap it off. Um, oh, that's a that's spicy. He has a sack in each of the last three games. In eight career playoff games, five and a half sacks. Talking about how good the pass protection has been this season for New England. I think it's more important in this game for the Rams to have solid pass protection. I don't think Jared Goff is going to be able to run around and make these plays out of structure the way that Patrick Mahomes did last week. New England, in the especially the first half, first quarter of that game, had excellent pressure on Mahomes. And you know, I, I don't know if it was more Lawrence Guy or Trey Flowers or some of these other guys, but I give it to Flowers because he's come up with the sack numbers. And I think it's important for them to develop some of that pressure and get Goff uncomfortable and out of his rhythm because a lot of their offense is based on those bootlegs and you know that guys running wide open over the field a lot of it comes through scheme can they make Goff just go out there and ball and make plays when he's under duress and I think Trey Flowers is going to be an important part of that I mean I was going to say I think Trey Flowers is the third best pass rusher wearing a Patriots jersey with Guy and Hightower above him I I was very surprised. I think he's great, and I think his ability to run stuff is pretty much unparalleled on the field, besides Aaron Donald and probably Ndamukong Sue. Um But I was surprised he was that high on your list. Seven and a half sacks list. this season. Six and a half last year, seven and a half the year before. So that w- that's our 10. Yeah, let's run through it again. Jake started the draft with Tom Brady. Obvious pick. Two and three, I went Aaron Donald and Todd Gurley. Four and five, Jake took Rob Gronkowski and Julian Edelman. Six and seven, I went Shaq Mason, the left guard for the Patriots, and Greg Zauerlein, the kicker for the Rams. Eight and nine, Jake took New England Patriots cornerback Stephon Gilmore and Los Angeles Rams left tackle Andrew Whitworth. And I finished it off at number 10 with defensive lineman Trey Flowers of the New England Patriots. I have four players on my list that did not— I made a list of the top 10 players— Regardless, mm-hmm. uh, and four of my players in my top ten were not picked. The four that are not picked 
and these this is probably for good reason my 10 9 8 and 7 so my worst out of the top 10 are not picked Akeem Talib and Marcus Peters are both on my list I think they are a great pass um a corner and safety duo I think they'll be better against the Patriots than they would be against the Chiefs because they are very good at guarding slants and, and horizontal routes and not very good at guarding vertical routes. But thankfully, the Patriots don't do those. Eight, I had Ndamukong Sue. Say what you want about the no longer dominant Ndamukong Sue, but he's still there. And he's flourishing because Aaron Donald is drawing double teams every single time. And from the edge, he's doing great. And then I have Sony Michelle. I don't necessarily love it and I think anyone can easily overtake him in that spot but this is a rookie doing things in a Patriots running game that is an already crowded backfield they have effectively four rushers with Michelle Burkhead White and Cordell Patterson that he's doing enough to keep enough touches under his belt I had a few names left in my top 10 I had two names that weren't taken Rob Havenstein, the right tackle mm-hmm. for the Rams. Um, I, I don't think he's as good as Whitworth. His pro football focus ranking is actually a spot ahead of Whitworth's. But Havenstein can be had with a, with a really talented pass rusher. Michael Bennett had success against him a couple weeks ago when the Eagles played the Rams. But he's been solid all season. And then at 10, I had Brandon Cooks, wide receiver from the Rams. Maybe not quite as productive as he's been in some past seasons when he's seen higher target share. But... Dude's dynamic, can change the game with a play. Um, I wrote down just a bunch of other names for consideration. So I had Tlaib in that group, Sue in that group. Actually, Stephon Gilmore was in that group as well. I'd be curious to see where you would put Jared Goff among all these players. And I was because, just going to bring it up. Yeah, obviously this is, this is going to be an important matchup to look at. I put Goff loosely on my list at 13, though I could have put him as low as 18 and probably felt okay about it. The thing about Jared Goff, and my first initial thing when I saw this was to look it up and see if somebody has a list. And the only list I found was some SB Nation. And I will leave everyone to say what they want about SB Nation. SB Nation has Tom Brady at one, Jared Goff at two, Aaron Donald at three. And at this point, I was questioning it. Right off the fact that Aaron Donald was three and not one. But what got me was they have J.C. Jackson at five. The Patriots corner. The probably right. fifth best player on that Patriots defense who almost cost us the game against the Chiefs at five in the top ten best players. So I stopped reading after that. But what they mentioned about Jared Goff was interesting because he wasn't very good towards the end of the Saints. He completed six of his final 11 passes. His he They were three of them for third downs. But his playoff passer rating is 78.9. You know who has a better passer rating in the playoffs than Jared Goff? Yeah, Blake Bortles does. Blake Bortles is a better passer rating than Jared Goff. I'm all for Jared Goff making a statement for himself, but I don't think in the top 10, top 15, you said, what, like 18? Yeah, I think reason reasonable spot would have been in that area. Now, in talent, sure, if we ranked it top 10 most important players, I'd put Jared Goff at one. Because if Jared Goff doesn't do well, nothing yeah. can go right. Yeah, absolutely. He's – I don't think there's really more yeah, to say I mean, about in any, him. In any game, if you ranked the two guys in terms of importance, 
you'd be hard-pressed to find a matchup where it's not quarterback of one team followed by quarterback of the other team. Especially against a balanced team like these. Yeah, especially in the playoffs, right? Yeah. When, when there's going to be talented players on both sides of the football in every unit and any matchup you want to pick from. A couple numbers on Goff. 10th this season in total QBR. It's up from 16th this season ago. But every every metric you can find paints the picture of a above-average to mediocre quarterback. And is that going to be enough to take down the mighty New England Patriots? It's going to take one of, if not the best games of his career to do it. And I think that's interesting to to follow this conversation about him because so much is made of the scheme and how great of a coach Sean McVay is, this genius that we all you know bow down to. What can Jared Goff do? And can he prove something that we haven't seen yet from him? Or is this kind of the ceiling? Because you know, right now I, I have the feeling he's going to be had in this game. In two weeks to prepare, the Patriots are going to be able to expose what's been a quarterback playing in a really friendly quarterbacking scheme with a lot of talented players around him versus a Patrick Mahomes type that backs against the wall. He can score 20-plus in the second half and bring your team back into it versus an Andrew Luck type that can bring your team back into a game, a Nick Foles, you name it, Drew Brees these other guys who have proved themselves in big spots. What do we make of Jared Goff moving into this game? That's one of the most interesting things for me to follow these next couple weeks. And with Tom Brady matching up against Jared Goff, and you can read all the stats, Tom Brady has more postseason touchdowns than Jared Goff has touchdowns, period. three years old when Tom Brady Tom Brady has as many wins in Arrowhead Stadium than any other quarterback does. Like, this is the biggest... If if you can tell me any NFC quarterback that will... Both have the ability to be dwarfed by Tom Brady's shadow, but also have the ability to block it out. It's Jared Goff. I think if you said Dak Prescott, I don't think that Dak Prescott has enough to surpass or blow through Tom Brady's shadow just for that one game. Or Russell Wilson, I think he has enough to burst through it, but I think he gets shadowed really easily with Tom Brady. But with Jared Goff, he is both being shadowed, like we just said, and he has the ability to be great. Should Jared Goff beat Tom Brady, that would be Two well, should have been the two first round picks of the 2016 NFL draft, or the one in the two pick as the quarterback position. That is the biggest validation Jared Goff will ever need. If he doesn't win a football game for the rest of his life, retires next year, gets replaced by CJ mm-hmm. Anderson at the quarterback position, and Tom yeah, Brady. That's another question. Where is, where is CJ Anderson oh, I, on this? I, list? I expect CJ Anderson <laughs> to get 20 touches this game because you need to off pace Todd Gurley because he's not A, fully healthy. B, dropped two of the biggest passes of the game against the Saints. You need to save Todd Gurley for the third and ten where you know that your pocket's going to collapse and you need Todd Gurley in open space. Let C.J. Anderson do the bell cow work, first down, second down, get two or three rush yards apiece. Let Todd Gurley do what Todd Gurley does best. You're listening to the Blue Hen Sports Cage podcast. Jake, let's go quick to baseball where our Hall of Fame class was announced just the other day. The headlining of that class has to be Mariano Rivera. Unanimous, 100% of the votes, the greatest closer in baseball history. Basically, without question, he is now officially a Hall of Famer. If you are in the party saying, Mariano Rivera is the first person to unanimously voted into the Hall of Fame, great. I'm part of the group that's saying, Mariano Rivera was the first person right. to be unanimously big, voted in the Hall of Fame. Conversation 
I guess it was two years ago about Ken Griffey Jr., who right. had all but three votes. Mm-hmm. And some very aggressive people were like, we need an explanation from all of three of you. And none of those three voters really were able to give any type of argument about his resume as a player. It was all these like, well, I just don't believe someone should be unanimous. Da, 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 da. Like, no, if you think he's in the Hall of Fame, vote for him on the first time on the ballot. And somebody like Mariano Rivera, somebody like Ken Griffey Jr. should be in. The names that I thought of, Nolan Ryan, Cal Ripken, Hank Aaron, they didn't get in unanimously. Eight people said Cal Ripken Jr., a player who played more than 2,000 consecutive games and put up numbers that no shortstop has ever put up to that date. And at the time of voting, no shortstop has even touched those numbers. Eight people said Cal Ripken wasn't all over. Does Marin Vera deserve to be unanimous? Heck yeah. I mean, there's no better person. If you think person. he's in the Hall of Fame, vote for him. Like, what's I don't understand these distinctions between unanimous yeah. or not. If you're a voter and you think this player is deserving of being in the Hall of Fame, what is time on the ballot going to change? Right. You, you vote for him if you think he's good enough. Uncaged, a frequent uncaged guest, James Cole, wrote at me and said, more people walked on the moon than runs Mariano Rivera gave up in the postseason. It, there's no reason. And how many that, times were the Yankees in the postseason right. in his career? It's there's no like reason for him to not yeah. be unanimous. But I think it's voting as a whole. And I think you said like, oh, I just don't think they should be unanimous. Even even the Cy Young Award, 31 voters put Jacob Degrom for the National League, and one said Max Scherzer. That's not as distinct because Max right. Scherzer had you wins. Could, you could build a case right. for you can, Max Scherzer. You can say Max Scherzer had wins. I mean, he and won strike, games. Like, right. Crazy strikeout numbers, crazy RA He had still. numbers. Yeah. That's fine if you leave him off the ballot. But if you have somebody who's played in 2,500 consecutive games, who threw no hitters pretty much every time he stepped on the mound in Nolan Ryan, who Hank Aaron, who had who left, left with the bases, with home runs, runs RBIs, yeah. and now Mariano Vera. The all-time greatest closer. I don't think anyone's even going to come close to him. There's no, oh, I just don't believe anyone's supposed to be unanimous. I think, personally, we should look into this. And if you don't put him on the ballot, (laughs) you got to be up there giving me a page, a paragraph, an essay as to why you don't believe it. Because it's it's a little absurd that he's the first. Part of the reason why the percentage of votes grows as players remain on the ballot is that all voters are restricted to 10 votes. So there's anywhere between 20, 30, 40 players on the ballot. So if it's close, the right thing to do, if you believe there are two players who are deserving and you're down to your last spot, is to put the guy who's been on the ballot for longer because then you'll be able to vote for the next guy on coming ballots. But somebody like Mariano Rivera, Ken Griffey Jr., Cal Ripken Jr., Hank Aaron, if, like first ballot he's in, like, forget about it. Yeah, it's- the other three names to make it into the hall, also very deserving. Roy Halladay, Edgar Martinez, and Mike Mussina. It was the final time on the ballot for Edgar Martinez. Still some conversation about Mike Mussina, whether he was deserving or not. He's got the numbers in line with a lot of other guys who are in the hall. He was just over the number of votes needed to make it in. And then Roy Halladay was about 85% of the vote. Uh, Very strong first time on the ballot for Halladay, and he's in. Right. Edgar Martinez and Mike barely missed getting in last year. Edgar Martinez was about nine percentage points off, and then Mike Messina was about 15, which isn't as big as a chunk as it sounds. I personally think this is one of the best Hall of Fame classes we've had. Last year's Hall of Fame class for uh, comparisons, Trevor Hoffman, Jim Tomey, Vlad Guerrero, Trevor Jones. Great class, great players. 
I don't think anyone touches Holiday, Rivera, or probably Edgar Martinez. I mean, he took a little while on the ballot, but I think Roy Holiday and Mariana Rivera put this ballot on a totally different level. If you take the 2002 to 2011 seasons for Roy Holiday, averages a 3.38 ERA. Two hundred thirty-two innings pitched, and let me get to the strikeouts as well. One moment, please. In the neighborhood of one hundred eighty-five strikeouts. Yes, yeah, it's crazy that he can just keep doing that, and he did. He did keep doing that. Is, they also I mean, said that he's not going in as, with a team, which yeah, I think is great. Out of he his his family said, out of respect for both the Blue Jays organization and, and the Phillies organization, who he feels equally a part of. Going in with that a logo, I respect the hell out of it. Um, very tragic what had happened in a plane accident a couple years ago. Roy Halladay dying only a couple years after his playing career ended, but no doubt, like such a dominant stretch. You look at 2008 to 2011, 2.78 ERA, 2.79 ERA, 2.44 ERA, 2.35 ERA, and you compare that to like the league average at that time, because that was still. Before we got into this era where batting numbers are down across the board, now home runs are back up. But we right. had that couple year stretch, like 2013, 2014, 2015, where, you know, Granky's got a sub two ERA and like. It's normal. Yeah. And the, all those, you know, mid two numbers were Jake normal. Jake Garrietta was unhittable. Yeah. He did it in that class before where you still had 40, 50 home run sluggers. Now we're seeing that kind of bring its way back up, but just absolutely incredible career. For Halliday, and I think all four guys deserving. I think you would agree as well. Yeah. All right, let's change gears here. Listening to Blue End Sports Cage on 91.3 WVUD with Jake Lampert. I'm Brandon Halvek. We're going back to football where we're not talking just Rams and Patriots. We're going to expand the scope to both the NFC and the AFC and take this year's six playoff teams and put them in our predicted order of finish for next season. So not necessarily saying that these are going to be the six teams left at the end but taking these six teams and ranking them heading into next season. Obviously, this is pre-offseason. This is pre-free agency, pre-draft. So it's difficult. You know, these are going to change by the time we get to the fall. But as we mentioned off the top of the show, it'd be a fun one to revisit on the Blue Hen Sports Cage podcast to see where our thoughts were at this point in the season as we head into the offseason and can kind of take into account, okay, what's the team losing? Do they have the draft capital, the cap room to continue to improve? Um, And let's start with the NFC, and I'll kind of have you just walk us through your list, and we'll kind of break down the teams from there. As as we do this, I have the FPI's ranking of the 10 playoff losers and their best odds to win the Super Bowl, so I have them ranked, cool. which also makes sense because the two winners are the first two on my list for their respective divisions. So NFC first, I have the Rams at one, and for okay. the same reason as I have New England at one, is they're here now. We don't know anything that's going to go on in the offseason, but should this team return the same, there is no reason for me to believe that the Rams do not, A, get better, because Aaron Donald, who held out for a contract and got a big one, and he's probably going to hold out again. I mean, why wouldn't he? It worked out for him. Todd Gurley's signed for the biggest running back contract. Jared Goff's still fairly cheap. Uh, Receivers are all there to stay. Get Cooper Cup back for a little bit longer stretch. They're all there to stay. Uh, So I don't think there's any reason why the Rams— get worse than that. Number two on my list, you want me to go through the whole one? Yeah, it just walks through your list. Two on the NFC, I have the Saints, the team that the Rams beat. I don't love it, 
because this was the best chance Drew Brees had to win A, a Super Bowl, and B, the NFC. But as long as Drew Brees is throwing a football, you need to put him on this list. Three, I don't know why, but it just makes sense. I have the Eagles. Mm -hmm. doesn't make sense why I have them there, but at the same time, you have to put them there. They got there the last two years uh, with Nick Foles, and if Carson Wentz is back and still playing at the level that we hope Carson Wentz can be able to play at, um, and they actually have a running back, no offense to Josh Adams, but they actually have a running back, well, they should be in a good spot. Uh, four, I have the Bears. I think that Mitch Trubisky is finally coming on the up to be a Tier 1 quarterback. Not an elite quarterback, but a Tier 1 quarterback. Uh, the next one I have is the Cowboys. Mm. I personally, and we mentioned this before the show, I think there's a big gap between the Bears and the Cowboys. Yeah. I think people can fill in uh, teams that maybe didn't even make the playoffs. Maybe yeah, Kirk I mean, Cousins history wins. tells us we will have six different teams. You right. rarely ever will get these same teams. So I think year. I think Rams, Saints, Eagles, and Bears, I would lock in to say they're going to be there next year. The Cowboys and the Seahawks, in that order, that's why I have next. I think there's a bigger gap between the Cowboys and the Seahawks, or bigger gap between the Bears and the Cowboys and the Seahawks. Dak Prescott, Ezekiel Elliott, Amari Cooper, yeah, they're great and all. They're meh. Should they keep Jerry, uh, keep uh, Jason Garrity in, which I think is the right move? They'll probably be in the mess state again. And I think Russell Wilson is done. I think his tank is emptied. And if Pete Carroll and company do not get people alongside him that can, quote-unquote, put fill his tank, put more energy in him, give him a good receiving core to throw to, give him a good tight end to throw to, as long as that's there, Seahawks will be sixth on my list. We got a similar list. I have a couple differences. At number one, I started with the Saints. Um, looking, kind of projecting out what's going to happen in the offseason, they have pretty much every single starter coming back. Right, they have the— right rephrase the sentence they have the ranked top 25 free agents for this upcoming nfl season none of the top 25 are saints i could see them parting ways with mark ingram um based on his cap figure or negotiating him down because you have alvin kamara there um they only have a second round pick in next year's draft so that's not going to be a huge avenue for them to improve maybe that doesn't bode well for the long-term outlook of this team but the talent's still going to be back you still have Drew Brees. I put them at number one in the NFC. Number two, I went with the Eagles. I, I think the Eagles are right there. They have a lot of ways to improve. Three picks in the first two rounds this offseason, and you hope you get a full, healthy season of Carson Wentz. There's a lot of reason to believe that that back injury was hampering him throughout the season. His mobility was not as great as it was in his second year. I think that makes a big difference. And they still have another year or two to cling on to some of those older core pieces defensively. So I think the defense will still be okay. Number three, I went with the Rams. And to me, these top three teams are really close. I think I went quarterback just over the the other two uh, and thinking that Jared Goff, did he hit his ceiling this season? How much more can he improve compared to the situations that you have in New Orleans and Philadelphia with Wentz and Breeze? Number four, I went with Seattle, but I think this is where I have a pretty big jump between the top three and my number four, it, it, it's deference to Russell Wilson and to his track record, really. And I think the running game came on strong at the end of the season. They put a lot of resources into that. I think it'll still be there next year. I wouldn't be surprised, though, if they took a big dip. And number five, I went with Chicago. I think the defense takes a step back. It's very hard to have these historic-type defenses year after year after year. So Jacksonville take a big step back from last year this year. I think we'll see a similar step back from Chicago, just as regression to the B, not really because they're going to lose a whole lot of guys there. 
And then number six, I have Dallas, and that's the team that I could definitely, like if I had to predict right now, I don't think they'd make the playoffs. They're locked into Dak Prescott pretty much, and they don't have a first-round pick. So I think they kind of reached their apex going 10-6 and six this season. Free agent-wise, uh, the ranking according to NFL.com, a few big names. Three Seahawks are on there, Earl Thomas, Frank Clark, and K.J. Wright. Frank Clark is a, is a huge one for them. Two, two Eagles are on there. 13th on the list is Ronald Darby. 24th on the list is Brandon Graham. I'd suspect Darby's gone. They, they're deep at corner. Brandon Graham is the biggest one to keep an eye on. I think if the price is right, they'd bring him back. But he could go elsewhere if he gets a big offer. And number one on the list, Marcus Lawrence of the Dallas Cowboys. He's yeah. the biggest free agent on the market contract-wise. franchise tag. Yeah, he'll get franchise tag. He'll probably not want to be, but he's not Le- Le'Veon Bell. He understands he'll this get team. Twenty million. He'll, they'll yeah. pay him when the time comes, and he's number one. Let's go to the AFC, Jake. We're ranking the top playoff, ranking the playoff teams one through six this season, but looking to next season here on Blue Hen Sports Gauge to the AFC. Run us through your list. First, I have the New England Patriots. Same thing as the Rams. Assuming not many pieces fall. Obviously, if Tom Brady, Bill Belichick retire. Changes everything. Everything. I, I probably won't even um, – yeah, I won't even put them on the list. I don't think they, they can they win their division. division. I don't – if they if they don't have Brady and Belichick and they have Brian Hoyer and if, if Brady and – possibly. If Brady and Belichick are gone and then maybe Nick Gronk Foles, follows. Daniels. If it's Nick Foles and Jonathan Daniels throwing to Edelman and Hogan – I might say the playoffs. I'd say they win as a, definitely as a wild card, but I'm not sure for the divisions. If the Patriots have won, I have the Colts at two. I've been high on the Colts the entire season. Andrew Luck is back into full form, and that team loses pretty much nobody on their team because they are all either rookies or they're signed in for the long run. They're too old and no one else wants them, i.e. Eric Ebron. The Texans are third on my list. Okay. I think Deshaun Watson and Hopkins and Watt and Jadavion Clowney. Clowney's number three on the free agent list. And Tyron Matthews, number 14. I think they all come back, and I think that this team is going to be good to make the playoffs pretty much either as a wild card or winning the division alongside the Colts. Number four, LA Chargers. Now, the Chargers at four, I don't think that they win any more than they did this year. I think Phillip Rivers' Super Bowl window has been shut, but I think they are fourth, and they have a good enough team to return. Number five, I have the Kansas City Chiefs. I think the sophomore slump's going to hit Patrick Mahomes. And we talked about it on the Monday show. I don't think that means going from 50-something touchdowns to 20-something touchdowns. But I think from 50-something to high 30s, mid-40s is a reasonable expectation for him. I think that team gets sophomore slump. They'll still be a playoff team. And then I have the Ravens. And I don't actually have any teams really peeping in to the six. I think the Steelers are dysfunctional. You mentioned the Cleveland Browns. I think they're about one more year away from playoff time. I think they will be playing till the final weekend. I don't think any AFC East team makes it unless the Jets finally put people around Sam Darnold, which they do have the money to do. I don't think any South team makes it. So I think these six teams are a good depiction of the six teams. I think they're going to make the playoffs. On that, I want, I'm going to lock in Cleveland right now. I was not as big on let the me, hype let train. Let me make a note in the, tw- as, the tweeters that Brandon says it. As a lot of other people were heading into this season, but I think that division's ripe for the taking. Pittsburgh is going to be without Le'Veon Bell, possibly without Antonio Brown. Baltimore is going to have some big adjustments to make now heading into the Lamar Jackson era. And we saw in that playoff game how that can be countered. I don't know yet. I want to believe that that can be a sustainable way to play football because it's fun. And I like seeing that college influence in the NFL. But I don't know if you can really win that way yet. 
Baker Mayfield is good. Baker Mayfield I said it. by next season is if he's not a top five quarterback, he's a top ten quarterback, mm-hmm. and he might already be. They have some good guys on that team. They still have draft capital to make the team better. They still have cap room this offseason. I think they make that jump. Again, I don't know if we've ever had the six teams go back-to-back. And of the divisions, that one to me is the ripest for the taking. And you got a really nice young core there. So I would project Cleveland as of today to make the playoffs. I'm going to lock that in. As far as these six teams go, though, similar in our order. I have New England 1. I put Kansas City, too. Um, I, I'm not as down on them. I do expect some regression to the mean for the offense. The defense, can it be that bad again? Like, they they have some yeah, resources. Can. I think the defense will get better. Especially because they're not going to sign D Ford. D Ford's going to be asking for trillions of dollars, and he just cost them their best chance at making it to the Super Bowl. They, they fired defensive coordinator Bob Sutton. <laughs> yeah. Steve Spagnolu has been reported as the favorite for that job. He was an Eagles defensive coordinator way back in the day. Head coach of the Giants for a couple of those Super Bowls. We'll see how that works out. Number three, I have Indianapolis, and that's the three I feel good about. I have a drop-off from there. I go Houston next. Offensive line, secondary, big concerns, but they're addressable. The core is there. Watson, Hopkins, you name it. Uh, Number five, Chargers. And number six, the Ravens. We have the same order, but you just took the Chiefs out and just put them above the Colts. Yeah, Everything put the Chiefs up there, number two. All right. I think that's pretty fair. Yeah. I, I like how they were put. Yeah, and, and what were the Chiefs this year? 13 and 3, 12 and 4? 13 and 3, I think. So is a more no, realistic. because it was 4. More realistic expectation for that team 11 and 5, 10 and 6 next year? I think so. Wait, but well, I don't know who, if they, who they, they lost to the Patriots. They lost to the Rams. They lost to the Chargers. And they, I think that was it. Rams, Patriots, Chargers. I can't think of another team that they would. Twelve they and four. Who was their fourth loss? Patriots, Rams, Seahawks, and Chargers. Seahawks. Right, 38, right, 31. right, right. That was the game that made me believe in the Seahawks. Russell Wilson out, out Patrick Mahomes, going lose Patrick to Mahomes. Dallas, right. On the road. I do, I do want to run through this free agent list because I think it's actually really interesting to look yeah. at the m- more popular teams. So Demarcus Lawrence is at one. Bell is at two. Jadavion Clowney and Grady Jarrett round out. And then Trey Flowers are the top five. I think all of those are safe to say that they're returning to their respective teams. Besides Le'Veon Bell, of course. But then it gets really interesting because you have three Seahawks in close proximity. We said Earl Thomas, Frank Clark, and KJ Wright. And Thomas will be back. Right. And I would probably – they'd probably lock up the other two. But then you have two Ravens. You have C.J. Mosley and Zadarius Smith. I don't even think they're that important. It's a great Baltimore Ravens defense, but yeah. they can't do anything in prime time. You don't, you don't invest in linebacker that heavily. Like. Right. And then it's Anthony Barr and Sheldon Richardson. Good players. They'll probably sign them. But what really gets me is they have Teddy Bridgewater up next. I think Teddy Bridgewater's done. Which is sad because I really like how he plays. Here, well, here's here's a question for you: Foles, Flacco, Bridgewater. Those are all going to be that class of stopgap. They're not really your future. Maybe maybe Foles and Bridgewater can be, but you don't know that. You have to probably overpay to get them. Are they Case Keenum or they turn out to be your guy? Of those three, how do you rank them? I'd probably put Bridgewater at three. Yeah, I think I go Foles, Flacco, 
Probably pretty confidently, in, and then Bridgewater. If I'm going to play for one season and one season only, I'd probably take Flacco. But if I'm not sure if in two years I'm going to have my quarterback, I'll take Nick Foles because I think Nick Foles He's over 29. two years is better than Flacco over one. Uh, but Bridgewater, he's behind Drew Brees. The Saints Hasn't can just stick him there. Years. Say, you're going to be behind Drew Brees until Drew Brees retires. And then when Drew Brees retires, maybe Teddy Bridgewater gets another crack at it. it it's sad that his career is over based on an injury. But at the same time, so it was RG3. RG3 could have been the best quarterback yeah. in football, but he got injured. It's a game. It's the game. It's how the game goes. Anything else to note? on these teams. We talked about Cleveland and the AFC. Is there a team that jumps out to you that did not make the playoffs this season in the NFC that you think has a good shot? Teams that did not make the playoffs in the NFC that have a good shot. Well, I don't think anyone from the East nor the North. So I, if I had to... I like... I throw Green Bay. Green Bay, new direction. You say AFC or NFC? NFC. That changes. Okay, Green Bay. Yes, that's Green Bay is one I would definitely bring up. It's Aaron Rodgers. You can't count him out. And then I'm going to say it because I was so wrong this year. It's the Carolina Panthers. They can't be that bad again, can they? Seven and nine after a almost historic collapse. They were five and one at a time, and then it just all went downhill from yeah. there. Christian McCaffrey's coming out as one of the best running backs and offensive weapons, Cam Newton's the Russell Westbrook of football. He's a loud, rambunctious guy that you're locked in for as long as he still walks. I think that that's a team that can be good, especially in that division, because the Falcons can't do anything, and neither can the Bucks. So it's a wild card of the division for them. I'll throw in one more. This is, you know, fantasy football. They talk about post-type sleepers, the guys that are all hyped up one year. They don't hit, but maybe the next year they come back. Say the two, Buffalo Bills. Three. San Francisco 49ers. Right, that, yeah, Jimmy Garoppolo is back. Jimmy Garoppolo. George Kittle. And everyone. They frankly. had the, George Kittle, uh, Pro Bowl season. They had a story on The Athletic this week where they had every beat writer from all 32 teams rank the chances of Antonio Brown ending up on that team. And they had him rank it on basically a 1-3 to three scale. The only beat writer that ranked it higher than a 2 was San Francisco. Seems like a fit. They got plenty of cap room. To make a move, and Jimmy Garoppolo, they've invested in him a lot already as a starting quarterback, and they add weapons around him this offseason. You're listening to the Blue Hen Sports Cage podcast. Talking earlier in the show about the no, not called phantom pass interference, whatever you want to call it, in the Saints-Rams game, and this has kind of been an ongoing thing. First it was Sean Payton immediately after the game. Now it's been Michael Thomas on Twitter talking about how this game should be replayed from that point forward and whatnot. Here's the latest on that ongoing saga, if you will. The probably second most prominent saint as per leadership behind Drew Brees is Benjamin Watson. This is a guy, a journeyman, Patriots, Ravens, Saints, who's done great things for all the organizations, just came out and said, and I quote off of his Twitter, uh, regarding Commissioner Goodell, he said, your continued silence on this matter is unbecoming of the position you hold, detrimental to the integrity of the game, and disrespectful and dismissive to football fans everywhere. From our locker room to Park Avenue, accountability is what makes our league great. Lead by example, we are waiting. So that is from, this is not from Michael Thomas, a, an outspoken superstar, but not much, quote-unquote, clout throughout the league. This is Benjamin Watson, who carries a lot to any locker room he goes to. He went out 
Roger Goodell. And I think that the Saints are still on this boat that this game should be replayed or something or some sort of um, payment, for lack of a better word, should go back to the New Orleans organization. On that, we talked earlier and I made the case for those plays to be reviewable. But I will say, as the New Orleans Saints, as a Saints fan, I think I'd want my organization to hold themselves a little bit higher. Like, Yeah, don't like, dwell. You, you lost the game. You're really now going in for a whole week, complain about the calls. Let everybody else do that for you, and you just play the game. You had a chance. Should you have gotten that call there? Absolutely. You got the ball first in overtime. You had opportunities after that point to still win the game, and you did not. So I would rather them recognize that than go on to this whole thing that seems extremely far-fetched and honestly a little bit like sore losers. You look at the other game, the way it ended, and everybody talking about the overtime rules should the Kansas City Chiefs had gotten the ball back. Well, you hear today Patrick Mahomes asked at the Pro Bowl by ESPN about it, and he said, that's how the game is, quote. You know that going in. You know exactly what the rules are. We're not complaining about it. The Patriots beat us. We got it to overtime. We should have won it in regulation if we didn't want to play overtime by those rules. Right? And that's probably how the Saints should approach this situation too. Yep. You're listening to Blue Hunt Sports Cage on 91.3 WVD and WVD HD1 Newark. Three games this weekend Starting tomorrow at noon, women's basketball takes on UNCW. Saturday at 2, men's basketball takes on Drexel. And Sunday afternoon against Charleston, the women's basketball team back in action. We're going to play a game of Change Jake's Mind. Jake, fill us in on what that means, what that entails, and let's get after it. So Change Jake's Mind is a little game we like to play where I make a claim to Brandon. This claim can be very sane or very outlandish, and the whole point of it is that Brandon needs to change my mind. But the only caveat is... He can't talk about anyone else, any team, any organization than the one I am asking him about. For example, if I tell Brandon that the Philadelphia Eagles will win 500 games this next season, Brandon can only talk about the Philadelphia Eagles. He can't bring up that, oh no, the Giants will win 501. This is based on the team that I ask. This being about Delaware basketball, we will start with the CAA tournament. The first is that the Delaware men's basketball team will not play on the first day of the CIA tournament. That means that Delaware is in the top half of the CIA. So I'm making the case that they will play. You, Yep, you need to change my mind and say the that they will weekend. play. Let's go through the schedule here. And again, also part of this is that I don't know exactly what's going to be asked of me before we get into it. But you look at the first cycle of this. At home so far in CIA play, Delaware is 3-1. and one. You look at their record on the road, two and two so pretty similar so far but i do think this is a team that's better at home than on the road the scenario in which they fall to sixth excuse me seventh in the caa fall out of that top six would be going on this road stretch february 14th to the 23rd and losing two out of those three games i think while the teams behind them continue to have success they're only at this point, two games over that mark in terms of wins, it's very possible that they fall back. Now, what's more probable is that they stay in the top six. 
but I think it would be losing those games on the road, shooters falling into a little bit of a slump, Carter gets some extra attention defensively, and then those teams behind Delaware simultaneously picking up their play. Let's flip it over. And I know, Brian, you just gave the reasoning for Now I'm kind of just going to give you the other side of it. Delaware men's basketball will play in the first day of the CAA tournament. So I know you brought up the schedule. Now you kind of got to give me the other side of it. You said that why they will. Now let's go with will not. So they're already in good shape. They control their destiny, so to speak. Look at the CAA standings right now. Hofstra's first at 7-0. Northeastern second at 5-2. Delaware's third, just a half game back of the Huskies at 5-3. If you go down to sixth in the league, that would be the combination of Charleston, William & Mary, and UNCW. All three of those teams are 3-4. and four. So a two-game lead over those two teams. And you still get everybody once more. So if they handle business against all of those teams below them, they'll end up with that 10 and 6, 11 and 6 type record in the CIA, which is more than enough to get them into that first six teams. Now, teams that below them that could give them problems Charleston, William, and Mary, maybe even Drexel this weekend, but they have enough of a cushion that unless some other team goes on a crazy, ridiculous run, they'll be able to drop a few of those games if they handle the business against UNCW, JAMU, Elon, Towson, the teams at the bottom of the conference they get to still play one more time this season. I do want to comment on that. Yeah, absolutely. And it's because you said it's a Delaware team that controls their own destiny. There are phrases and sayings in the sports world that when you hear them, it brings chills to your body. And as a Delaware college sports fan, Delaware controlling their own destiny scares the heck out of me. The past <laughs> They've not done a good two job with seasons past two seasons of football they were in control of their own destiny and they have fumbled both of them two years ago they didn't even make the playoffs this year's awful slope to end the season had them matched up against james madison delaware men's basketball while last year they were not uh in as great of a position in the beginning of the season as they were they had an opportunity in the middle specifically both against towson to get back into the top half and not play the first day controlling their own destiny and they have failed there too. Even with field hockey, we talked about Delaware being the CIA champion. They can control their own destiny forward. They've fallen out of the national championship spotlight, like most teams do, but they've fallen out faster than usual. So when you said that, I kind of perked <laughs> up. I was like, no, that's not, not what I want to hear. But this Delaware men's basketball team has their entire season in their hands. No one else is controlling them. It's not like you're waiting and hoping teams lose or teams win. If you win, you're going to be fine. The third one is now to an individual player, and this is Ithiel Horton. I'm making the claim, and Brandon and I both agree that he will win CAA Rookie of the Year if the season ended today. But why, give me a reason, why Ithiel Horton will not win CAA Rookie of the Year. Ever since we talked him up a couple of weeks ago, he's been cold. He's been Very. cold. After that 31-point game against UNCW, which set a Delaware freshman scoring record, Horton is averaging just 5.3 points per game off 5 of 22 shooting from the field. Simultaneously, it seems like Ryan Allen's starting to get going a little bit more, had the 
a nine-point game against JMU, which was a career best. Shooting was cold against Towson, but you're starting to see like he's getting his five, nine, seven, three-point shots up consistently, and they've been pretty good looks. Eric Carter also getting himself back on track. So the case that Horton falls out of that top spot for CAA Rookie of the Year is that he falls out of favor in the Delaware offense, that Eric Carter, Ryan Allen, maybe Kevin Anderson take more of that scoring load, and we continue to see Ithiel Horton's numbers drop. He's down to just under 13 points per game. If you look at what Ryan Daly and Ryan Allen did each of the last two seasons, they were both up over 15 points per game. He's fallen off in that regard. Still a little bit more efficient scoring-wise, 41.4% from three. Love to see that. But that's a number that's slipping a little bit too with these last couple of games. So if he ends up more in that 36-37 area, it's still a very solid freshman year, but not quite to the standard that Daly and Allen have set before him. This last one? It's kind of interesting. I agree with what you said on that. And this one is one that I was thinking about early in the season. And this is in regards to minutes per game. Currently, five players on the Delaware team average above 30 minutes a game. Kevin Anderson leading the charge with 34.9. Darian Bryant right behind him. Then Allen, Carter, Horton. And Varetto is right behind them with 22.1. I'm going to make the claim that come the CAA tournament, Delaware will only have three players averaging above 30 minutes per game. Now, whether that's because of injury, whether that's because of rotation, whatever it might be, I believe that this Delaware 5 that they currently have above 30 points per game will not last. Brandon, you need to convince me that these five players will have above 30 point, thirty minutes per game. Martin Inglesby sticks with his guys. We saw it a lot over the last couple of seasons with Ryan Daly, sometimes a little bit hobbled playing 38, 39, 40 minutes a night, multiple weekends in a row. And it got to a point where, with the rest of the talent that Delaware had, Inglesby did not feel confident enough to pull him off the floor for more than a couple seconds at a time, literally, playing 38 minutes a game over the second half of the season last year when he was healthy. And we've seen that in some of these close games that come down to the wire. You get to the 7-8 minute mark in the second half, and if he finds a five-man war- lineup that's working, he's going to stick to it. He, he wants to go deep in some of the games that get a little out of hand, but the close ones, that rotation tightens very quickly. Against Columbia, double overtime, Ithiel Horton was having a good game. He played all 50 minutes, and that was a non-conference game back in December. So in these CAA games down the stretch, particularly the ones on the road where you'd think role players are probably not as apt to have a really big game compared to at home when they can feed off that energy, he'll stick to his guys, Carter, Allen, Anderson, Bryant, you name it, those guys in particular, will continue to be over that 30-minute game mark. We haven't seen much of Jacob Cushing. He's played just 14 of 21 games. Goss is only used in some stretches. Matt Ferretto's playing time has diminished the last couple of weeks. Those trends will continue. Have seen a little bit more of Ryan Johnson. He's given him some good defenses on the wing, particularly when some of the other guys have gone cold. But I believe down the stretch, Inglesby's going to stick with his guys, and that's Carter, that's Allen, that's Anderson, that's Bryant, and those guys will continue to be well over 30 minutes a game. Last year, at the end of the season, four players finished with above 30 minutes per game. Ryan Daly with 38, Ryan Allen with 37, and Kevin Anderson 33 in the 11 games that he played and started, and then Anthony Mosley with 32. 
are you at all surprised that nine Delaware men's basketball players are averaging over 10 minutes per game? Yeah, I'm surprised to still see that Cushing and Goss are there. That's probably brought up by their early season minutes because it seems like they haven't really played. In the past few games I've called, Jacob Cushing hasn't played. Yeah. And Colin Goss has, he came in a lot uh, when Eric Carter fouled out early uh, and he needed to come and play that center role. But I'm kind of surprised that Inglesby, with losing two big minute players, 37 and 33 minutes with Brian Daly and Anthony Mosley, have found a way to go nine deep and play consistent basketball. But I do agree with you. That when push comes to shove, if you were to ask me what five players is Ingles be going to put out, it's the five-minute leaders in Anderson, Bryant, Allen, Carter, and Horton. And I think in the tournament, this could change based on matchup. But I would say they're probably seven deep. Seven deep. And, and I would say Vredo and, Ryan and Johnson. Johnson. With, with the – I'd say seven with like an asterisk on of when and if Eric Carter gets tired, you put Colin Goss in. Yeah, I but think not on some a matchups, rotational guy. Yeah, in some matchups, Goss can work for a couple minutes. But I would say, generally speaking, that's the seven. And Veretto will probably still get 15, 20 minutes, maybe even a little bit more. He's averaging 22 minutes a game right now. And Johnson will get maybe 10 to 15. All in the all in the second half, though, because Inglesby has shown, both against Towson and James Madison, that he trusts his defense more than anyone else. He mo- More times than not, Ryan Johnson's the on-ball defender, and then come the offensive switch, Ithiel Horton comes in, and they go back and forth with that. Anything else on Delaware basketball? Three games this weekend. What are we watching for? A win for Delaware men's basketball against Drexel. They need to close out this season, not this season, this first half of the CAA season with a win. Get back into the win column and get ready for the second half.